welcome to PhD with Woman on It, Hack the Future. My name is Baka Young and today's PhD, Positivity Hacks Delivered, will be by our guest, Helene Panzarino. Topic, how can we advocate for faster growing startup ecosystems? Episode 95 starts here. Let me remind you. This is a grassroots community that focuses on women on IT, an inclusive forum of women in startups, technology, and female leaders who are supported by men as well. And I bring a heart to that hustle because empathy is my motto. And empathy is critical when you advocate for faster growing startup ecosystems. Let me just tell you a couple of important mentions uh, I would like to bring to your attention. Applause to Rebel Girls, an 11-year-old San Francisco company that is building a girl-centered media brand through female-focused content, including podcasts and books. They raised 8 million Series A round, led by Penguin Random House, with common sense growth of also chipping in. Well done. Congratulations to the nonprofit Him for Her organization for joining Nasdaq to close the markets to highlight their work in accelerating diversity on for-profit boards. Congratulations on helping to place over 100 hairs on boards. And finally, great news everybody, British space scientist Dr. Maggie Adderin Pancock, among the women trailblazers in science and tech for being honored in a new line of Barbies for International Women's Day. Now let's go back to our topic. How can we advocate for faster growing startup ecosystems? The startup ecosystem is a complex and dynamic network that is constantly changing. A study carried out by Columbia and Harvard School demonstrated that even in the most gender progressive nations, investors asked male founders questions regarding scale and numbers, while women founders were asked about managing family and office life. No news there, is there? Helene Panzarino, our guest for PhD 95, mentioned in an interview for Fintech magazine, it's much harder for entrepreneurs to find true advocates. Advocating for faster growing startup ecosystems is essential to accelerate the growth of startups and create a sustainable environment for innovation. Helene, originally a commercial banker, is an associate director with the Center for Digital Banking and Finance in LIBF, part of the Vacuum Labs Community Bank Team, an experienced fintech program director, a passionate entrepreneur, educator, and author. Her career boasts a number of firsts, including the Fintech Scale Program for Rainmaking, the inaugural program for education and events for Innovate Finance, as well as the Fintech Entrepreneurship Masters for UCL. to see women in tech uh, being at the C-suite table. And Helene, I would like to start with the question or actually your quotation. I've steered clear of quotas, but I now think they may have a place. 
tell us what do you mean steering out of quotas and why do you think it's important to have quotas? Thank you, Bertha, and thank you for having me. I think I, I missed a little bit of the earlier part of your leading up to the question, but I think we're talking about C-suites and female representation in balance. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, I have always steered clear because I thought, well, the logic of it, the, the bottom line, the diversity of thought, the fact that so many of the customers are in the same customer base as in, in female, surely we will get to that point just by natural evolution. But when I started thinking about different aspects of, for example, financial services, because as you pointed out, I spend a lot of my time in the fintech space, and how certain things, for example, around vulnerability and vulnerable customers or competition, and we saw with open banking that launched in 2018 here in the UK, some institutions, some industries just will not get there if we leave them to their own devices. And I think we've given, we've given corporate life enough time to get there on its own. So that's why I've come to the conclusion that they need a bit of a help so if we set some of the quotas, once you start seeing it and feeling it and living it and see the results, then it will just happen on its own. But like so many things, if there is no stick, I just don't think you, the carrot will work. Mm. Well, we appoint a head of diversity. It's usually a white male. And uh, we let them do all these policies. But deep down, nothing changes. We still have all male panels of discussion. We still have, or as some people call it, manos. Um, we still have banking, finance industry that is very heavy male oriented. And uh, I am actually attending the uh, Boca Raton conference. And I have to say the number of female speakers is not so high. So um, definitely, quotas is one thing that we can do because i like to mention the fact that as um, our uh, malta minister once said helen um she she was mentioning the fact that it's so difficult to change the mindset it's so much easier to change the regulation and mindset mm -hmm. will follow and that brings me to this um, mindset of for example when we had the change of regulation regarding people smoking right in public places everybody was talking about how difficult it's gonna be and all these people oppressed uh, all these smokers oppressed that they have to stay outside and smoke in the cold somehow nobody died from smoking in the cold it's quite the opposite people that were non-smokers inhaling all this this smoke um were heavily impacted. But anyway, let's talk into the, uh, let's dive into the health uh, question, because Helena, you have been on a quite a roller coaster. And you mentioned uh, to me, and we just finished talking about, about the power of surrender. Tell us the story. What's the power of surrender? What's the meaning behind that? Yeah, you you think also for somebody who has been, you know, I've been mostly uh, self-employed for a very long, long time, where fixing it, always trying to fix something. If something's wrong, you look for the solution. So you try everything and you rarely look at 
doing nothing or letting go or letting nature take its course. But it was about, oh, I spent around 2000 and I'd come out of having sold my first business and I was out of the earnout. And truly, I think my body was just from the stress exhausted. So I was training for a marathon and I was putting a lot of physical pressure on myself. And of course, the body doesn't differentiate between physical or emotional stress. And at some point, literally everything started to stop working. My, I was very tired, very fatigued. I was sleeping pretty much most of the day. I'd started to lose all my hair. I uh, couldn't really function. And when I went to speak to doctors, they couldn't figure out what it was. They did a lot of tests, but couldn't figure out what it was. So me being me, I tried everything, Chinese, Ayurvedic. I tried any kind of medicine, T-cell transplant, everything. I went everywhere. And then at the same time, while this was happening, my father became very ill and I needed to go spend time with him in hospital in the States. And so I was there for a few months. And when I came back, I just remember thinking I'm exhausted and I have no idea why this is happening to me. And I almost, let's say, surrendered to some higher power, whether you believe in a God or a religion or uh, whatever your beliefs are, I just let go and said, I don't know why this is happening to me, but there must be a reason that I've been given this condition, if you like, to help other people. So it transpires that I have an autoimmune condition, which I obviously still have. And that is part of me and the acceptance of that being part of me. And I didn't fight it anymore. Release the stress I actually started to get better. I became able to go out and get fitter and then wound up finding myself getting very fit and helping celebrities and things like that on their fitness journey. So the realization was if it's part of you, it won't go away. Own it. You cannot fix everything. Sometimes you just have to let it go. And also be open enough and aware enough to know that it's not all about you. That is the, that's actually the time I learned what I call the best four letter word, which is help. Mm. Because prior to that, I never asked for help from anybody. I was giving help and not asking for help. So, yeah, it's not all about you. Um, am I on mute? I might be on mute. No, I am back. I use it's not all about us. Uh, however, we sometimes are rattled by the thought of why is the universe doing it to me, right? So, exactly. instead, um, your um, approach was to surrender, to let it go, and the letter. For, for a letter um, word, help. Why is it so difficult uh, to you to reach out for help? I, th I think it started a long time ago. I am effectively middle child of a very large family. And so I was always giving help from a young age. My mom was working when I was you know nine or 10. And so I was taking care of things and you get in the mode. I was very responsible and I didn't feel like I could let people down anywhere in my life. And so I always took care of everybody and everything. And it wasn't until this happened to me and then with my dad that I realized that I don't ask for help. Uh, it was a, the rest of my family said, you never ask for help. So why should we help you or think you need help? And I was doing it in my work life as well. You, you think that no one can do it the way you can do it. So you just keep going, which is not the way to grow a business, not the way to have a work-life balance, not the way to stay healthy. It was completely the wrong thing to do. Yeah. 
So self-sufficient Helen, I decided to ask for help and <laughs> you mentioned that uh, the first answer was no. How do you cope <laughs> with, with when you reach out for help and you hear no? Yeah, I, so, you know, I guess I went into actually asking for help kind of with half of my mind going, maybe, maybe not. Don't expect too much from them. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And then it didn't happen. I w it, it was initially, I just remember thinking, okay, I've done it. And I actually felt very proud of myself. And I, it, was a, it was a major change for me. And that was, gosh, that was, uh, I was in my 40s and I'm now in my 60s. So that was a long time ago. It came to me late in life, but it's helped me ever since because now I will ask for help and I have no problem with it. And whether I get it or I don't get it, I just feel, well, I put it out there. So <laughs> what's the chance? Mm. Yeah. But we had a long conversation about not getting what I wanted from that help. <laughs> well, I have to admit that uh, there was a big aha moment when I was meeting women tech makers, Google, uh, as a Google ambassador. And I mentioned the fact that we all are riddled with this perfection, uh, striving for perfection. But really, we should only and solely focus on progress, making progress. And help is definitely one of the ways how you can make progress. It doesn't have to be perfect. And since we are talking about done better than perfect, the startup mantra, let's go into the startup world. Helene, how did you enter this fascinating world of opportunities for the global economy? It was. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur, and it was slightly accidental. I was running a software house uh, in London when I first came over here. Enjoyed it, but I was working 24 hours a day, and I wanted to do something different. So I trained to become an English language teacher, ESOL, or uh, you know any of that type of people might know it uh, in their in their part of the world. And I was teaching business English, very busy, really enjoyed it. And one day they put the numbers up on the board saying, this is our financials, blah, blah, blah. And as I'd come from a finance background, I remember thinking they're going to close. <laughs> so it was, it was a sliding door moment of get up, walk next door, because in, in, it was, it was really, I can, I can almost remember it now telling myself, get up and go next door. I went to the owners of the business and I said, you're obviously going to close. Can I have all of the business that's booked already and all of the equipment and everything else? And they said, yes. And then I went upstairs to the teacher's lounge and I took literally a piece of paper and a pencil and ma marked out a spreadsheet saying, look, look, I can pay you. I can pay. Uh, come and work with me. Of course, I couldn't. And I didn't, you know, I, I, well, I didn't know if I could. Um, but I knew that I had to get more people than me. And I stood on a corner in Knightsbridge saying, if I was studying business English in London, where would I want to be? And I found one tiny room uh, opposite Harrods, the famous department store here. And so it went. And then a couple of years later, I had expanded to needing a floor. Um, and at that time, money was very expensive here. And there wasn't this whole uh, equity um, ecosystem that was available. So I started looking to buy someone that had a building and a, a longstanding business. And while I was doing that, three people approached me to buy my business. So I, at the time, also felt very sorry for my husband because unbeknownst to him, I was spending our savings on this business because <laughs> because... I hadn't gone into it, making sure that all the money that I needed was sitting in my account. I was very much flying by the seat of my pants. And it was I realized then that I didn't know enough about corporate finance. 
that I understood the power of planning that you actually have to live it. I was exhausted. And when I saw that I was, you know, as I said, I had that year of burnout, which was also exhausting. And I went from there to start helping as a business advisor to help now nearly 30,000 SMEs, mostly on their funding journey. So as uh, uh, Eisenhower said, uh, plans are nothing, plan is, planning is everything. Yes. What about planning financial uh, books for startups? And that's actually another book we have here to mention. Helene published um, Business Funding for Dummies. Tell us what's this book about and why it is important for startups to get their finances and funding running. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, when they approached me, the Dummy Series approached me to write this book. And by that time, I'd been an advisor in about five different enterprise agencies, privately as well, and giving workshops, et cetera. So I'd, I'd had, like I said, by that time, maybe 20,000 experiences of working with uh, businesses that were getting funded. And I remember thinking, if I put all of what I've learned into this book, people will stop asking me the same questions. Of course they didn't. A new generation of founders came and they asked me the same questions. But it was good for me to focus all the different aspects of before you start, uh, you know, question really whether or not you want your, you and your, your home life and your family life or your personal life are ready for this. Make sure that there is a problem and you have a solution for that and you haven't just made that up on your own. Make sure you do a basic spreadsheet forecast, starting with the things you know you're going to spend and then the things that you might get in so that you can get to some idea of how much money you need. And then the book talks about all the different types of funding that there are. So whether it's equity or crowdfunding or debt or convertible debt, uh, it goes through all the different types of funding and lots of resources uh, that are in there and different stories and, um, you know, um, talking to the people who set these these organizations up as well for, for their uh, advice. So that was that was that journey. And that's why I did it. And to this day, I'm still having these conversations with people. And I still watch people start out and say, OK, I've done the forecast. I think I need 500,000. And then they'll ask for 50,000. And you ask them why. And they say, because I'm afraid that I won't be able to repay it. Mm. And if you don't, and you know this, we, m most of us know this, if you don't have enough money when you start for the period of time, that 12 months, 18 months, however long your sales cycle indicates and however long you think it's going to get to break even, likely is that you will fail. Mm. And that part of that is just accepting. I think the other thing is people think, especially if it's equity, that I must, you know, I must make sure that they get their money back. Equity funders know they're not always going to get their money back. You know, they know. 10 bets will yield three that die, one that's great, you know, and so on. And you mentioned, um, you know, at the beginning of this about this, this, this uh, type of thing with regard to, to the funding side of things. I think people, women in particular, are more afraid of not making the payback. They're not risk averse. Mm -hmm. You are right about that study where uh, if, if you answer in the negative, to somebody speaking to you negatively, you're less likely to get the funding. And I think that study bears it out. Whereas if you're asked a question in the negative, like tell me how you're not going to lose my money versus tell me how you're going to make my money make more money. And if you answer in the negative, you're less likely to get that money. Mm. So there's the planning and the knowing, being able to explain what you're using the money for and why. 
there's the semantics, the way that you answer, there's the confidence, and then there's the awareness that investors are not expecting everything to to, to go rosy. So it's okay mm-hmm. if it doesn't pay out. Well, there's the confidence, there's the leadership uh, that is necessary. There is the uh, own your space or own the room when you walk into the investors meeting. Um, but let's go back to the powerful question. How can we advocate for faster growing startup ecosystems, Helena? Do we have uh, one answer that fits all? Well, you know, it's interesting, Beata, because we talk about even the word advocate or sponsor and advocacy. I think what we tend to do, particularly in the startup space, is over-mentor and Mm -hmm. under-sponsor. So if you think about that, the continuum from mentoring to sponsoring to advocating, you know, you or advocating to sponsoring you it's great to have a mentor somebody who's near you and you can bounce things off or somebody who's been in your shoes who can help you it's great to have someone advocate for you in this space i think this company is worth uh having a discussion with investor i've looked through their you know their plans and their financials and i've spoken to the founders have a conversation And then there's somebody who sponsors you and is much more active about saying, I'm going to put you in that situation because Mm. I I trust that you you have what it takes to be there. And it took me ages, and I mean ages, to work out. So there's two points in my my career, my employed career, where I had somebody who was my sponsor and it was like a penny dropped Mm -hmm. because you realize... It's great to have someone to bounce things off, but it's even greater to have an agreement with somebody where I'll, I will do what they need from me and I'll, 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 you know, I'll say this is what I'm doing. And they will, on the other hand, have the faith in me to put me in the right position. Much more powerful than a mentor. Oh, absolutely. Well, we've been uh, both um, involved in the startup ecosystems. Uh, Me back in 2013 in Poland when we built Mission to Run Startups. And the one thing that people were trying to replicate very badly was having all these mentors who've never opened business, who were only working nine to five corporate jobs. And really, of course, they could tell you about books, they could tell you about how to run a company, but not so much opened the door for you. And one thing that I have to mention here, not only about advocacy for women, but also advocating for startups starts with not asking a question, have you done this? Have you done that? But actually saying, well, I spoke to so-and-so and I suggested they, they meet you and here is a meeting set up. And that way you can be truly an advocate for a startup. That's, that's one of the takeaways uh, from uh, this discussion, uh, Helena. So um, Rainmaking Loft and Rainmaking Program, tell us about that. How did that develop? That was lovely. <laughs> and and actually, on the mentoring side, Rainmaking, some people will know as the parent company of Startup Bootcamp, and many people will be more familiar with Startup Bootcamp. So uh, Nectarios Leolios, who was the CEO at the time and who is a wonderful, wonderful advocate and sponsor uh, and a wonderful person, uh, came to me at the time and said, uh, we're evolving this this startup program and we need to move into fintech scale. And at the time, there really wasn't anything globally that existed. 
he said, I kind of have, you know, half a piece of paper, right? Half a piece of, uh, not so totally blank, but half a piece of a paper where we have the existing program and we need to figure out where we're going with this. I absolutely love a blank or blankish piece of paper. I had the same thing at Innovate Finance when I went there because they didn't, this is the trade body for FinTech. They didn't have an education and events program. And to some extent I had a similar thing at Grand Thornton when I was helping them to get equity out to the FinTech uh, startups. So for me, it was one of those wonderful moments of speaking to lots of people to get input from the whole of the industry, the banks, the end users, the mentors, the tech people, the regulators, everybody. And within a period of about, so this was November 2017, and by January, we had rolled out a new program, and which was usually would take the better part of maybe nine or 10 months uh, to get a new program out. And there was no equity exchanged. It was a certain sweet spot of scale up that could only be invited to be on this program. And it was a very tight, live eight day program. So we'd done work before that. We'd screened people. We'd had interviews. You know, we'd spoken to our, our banking partners, et cetera. But the live sessions were only eight days. The difficulty was for the banks and the financial institutions really to make quick decisions in eight days because the way it was set up was you give us a challenge, maximum two, that you're trying to achieve, and we will find the companies that could potentially fulfill on that. So they were much more mature. They were they had enough people. They had enough money in the bank for runway. They had some experience working with large institutions before. They had some frameworks. So it was really geared for speed. And it was interesting that the, 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 the party that coped less well was the financial institution because they were used to, you know, 11 month programs, dragging it out. And I'm so proud of what we achieved. And the team was very small. There were only four or five of us. Nectarios was a fantastic advocate, sponsor, protector, enabler. He gave us everything that we needed. And he also allowed me to, to bring people into the team who had no experience in the space, but were incredibly organized and had a different point of view. And it just worked really well. Um, and some of the people who've gone on, uh, Trin Linamagi, you may have come across Trin. She's now got part of her own investment firm because mm -hmm. that's what she wanted to do, Sea um, Ventures for investing in women or Catherine Dworkin, who left to set up her own communications agency. There were some amazing people there. And the companies went on to the US, uh, to Australia. I've kept in touch with many of them. So I was very proud of that. Mm. So Helena, uh, one thing that strikes me here from this discussion, you've done it all. I mean, you've written book, you've advised uh, fintechs, you've advised um, uh, on startup programs. How do you do that? How do you learn? Is it by tinkering and playing or do you do a lot of background uh, learning? That's very interesting because I've said my own my own experiences and I suppose my because most of the time my initial contact point is around finance um, and people it uh, for me I tend to be I call myself uh, you know a, a dot connector. Uh, I'm good in operations because I can see a bit from here and a bit from here and a bit from there. So whether that's people or finance or go to market or whatever it might be. And my, I call it range of experience 
has given me a window into many different, you know, whether it's fitness or fashion or technology, um, banking, many different industries. And so, yes, I'm able to go through the format, but I'm also able to understand a lot of the industry. And having been a, a startup, I can empathize with the founder as well. It's I I'm it's something that I, you know, people will always say to when people are starting out in their careers, oh, you've got to focus, you've got to focus, you've got to go down on, you know, be very focused. It's the only way to succeed. And for a long time, I was criticized for being that jack of all trades and master of none kind of person. Um, but actually, I think that's my superpower. Hmm. You're <laughs> a fixer. And I, my my view is not so, um, you know, linear. Exactly, and focused on on one point. I'm seeing lots of things, and I can bring them in an organized way. We laugh about this. My mom was German. My father was Italian. I am organized chaos. Mm. Renaissance uh, Helena Panzarino from mm. with this Italian background uh, definitely <laughs> um, helps as well. So um, we talked about financing for startups. And since we talk about banking industry, we've been uh, rattled by some Sesame Street does financial meltdown. And this week's letter for past banks is S. And <laughs> <laughs> one thing I wanted to discuss with you, Helena, uh, in case you missed I mean, the viewers, in case you missed it, uh, Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed titled Who Killed Silicon Valley Bank? And columnist Andy Kessler is essentially blaming the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on the fact that they had diversity on their board. Let me quote. In this proxy statement, SVB notes that besides 91% of their board being independent and 45% women, they also have one black one LGBTQ and two veterans. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have been distracted by the diversity demands. What do you say to this toxic um, trivia here? I'm When I read it, I, uh, I was speechless because I can't believe, I forget about people talking about being woke and everything else, forget about it, but somebody just being so illogical uh about that mix up of uh, makeup of people and the ending that came not 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 one didn't have anything to do with the other one at all you know i think if i if i think about uh their board or or their c-suite and and it's uh, i think she she can quote me on this but i think we can we can read that they didn't have a, a risk officer chief risk officer for something mm. like eight months um, you're, you know you're long and you can see that interest rates are going up. Uh, Powell at the Fed or here, uh, Andrew Bailey at, the, at the, um, the Bank of England were very public about the fact that they were driving up interest rates to try and get inflation under control. That, that wasn't a surprise. And I appreciate the fact that it steamrolled and it happened very quickly when it happened, but the signs were there. And a board part of a board's responsibility is to make sure that everything is being addressed that could potentially be uh, that problematic. So I would love to have been part of the, you know, a fly on the wall when some of those conversations were going on. But I don't think you could blame it on diversity being a distraction. I mean, 
other things might have been but but no that's not it that's not it at all no it's it's quite puzzling why anything like that got published anyway speaking of the cassandra syndrome syndrome why don't people listen to facts that are backed by god one of the most frustrating things that you have experienced tell us about that helena yeah at, at one point i considered changing my name to cassandra um <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the Greek, the Greek mythology story. You know, she was, she was, uh, let's say, blessed with the with prophecy, with the gift of prophecy, and then cursed because uh, the the curse was about no one listening to her. And it is frustrating. And there have been times in my career where, partly because I'm listening to all the signs that are on the wind, and partly because I am that kind of arranged person, and I'm reading lots of things and watching lots of things. In 2016, for example, I remember thinking we must speak to the community banks. I love a community bank and a credit union and, and all that size of financial institution. We should start speaking to them and stop speaking to the tier ones who have been through so many programs, accelerated programs, entrepreneur and residents. The tier ones think they can do it themselves. So let them get on with it. Why, why make your life hard? Whereas the smaller banks really they hadn't been through this digital transformation they didn't have the same it departments the same amount of money etc and we could help them and be, for years people were saying what is she talking about and <laughs> just and now i look at and i'm so proud of all the community banks for example in the us and the building societies and mutuals here in the uk who have come together to work with fintechs on partnerships come together to get their own investment funds come together to get their own accelerator programs. They've learned so rapidly because they are that next close, authentic level of, of finance um, for, for many people. And the credit unions, although sometimes the relationship between those banks and the credit unions is a bit uh, not as smooth as it could be, the credit unions now, every day I see on television people saying, well, if you're not gonna get a loan from a traditional bank, go to your credit union people are going to start to wake up to what a credit union is and they also need to look at their technology for example but again two years ago i was saying credit unions you know part of the time you get pushback is in a commercial environment people will say look they don't have enough money to buy the technology or participate in the program or whatever it is but you have to kind of think of different ways where you can do things in kind or work out a different finance structure so that you can help them earlier on and for me personally, it was very frustrating because I could see it a long while ago. Right now, I'm looking at uh, financial vulnerability and financial vulnerability as a precursor to potential fraud. I've been having this conversation for the better part of six years about financial vulnerability. And now in the UK, we're coming to the consumer duty being um, regulated in come, come July time. And everybody is suddenly thinking about it. If you think back to 2009, 2010, post the financial crisis, many people were vulnerable, but there was no support system and no recognition of it. We've changed now through COVID and we're much more aware of trying to help people, which let's face it, for the financial institution is also a win. But again, for six years, I've been talking about it, but it wasn't on the priority list of most financial institutions. It is now. So... I always have to wait and I find it quite frustrating. Mm. 
the waiting game is frustrating. So if it wasn't for COVID, we wouldn't have uh, so many digital running banks. However, um, COVID also made quite a big ball for all the cybersecurity uh, issues. Um, and I'm wondering how can startups help in that field? Or is there a way to help uh, these smaller banks? I think, you, and I think you're right, Bats. I think also um, reg tech as a subsector or a vertical of the wider fintech is much more pronounced now. And, and attached to that, we'll call it subtech for the, so the, the tech for the actual regulators. We've become so much more aware of this, as you say, through all the things that have happened. The UK is quite well known for being, um, uh, having a lot of fraud and a lot of scams going on. So it's, it's very much in the fore of many people's minds. And I think that the smaller, startup or the scaling uh, reg tech business can be a great help to the smaller organizations in partnership with them or using technologies like APIs to, to plug in, but also to the regulators for learning, for discussing, for cons consultation as regulations form, and also for the regulators themselves who also have a need to get timely information so that they can speak to nefarious operators much more quickly and take them out of the market. So I think it's a good moment for people in this space. Mm. Great moment for startups to bring that opportunity and tackle that challenge. Uh, how is London post-Brexit? You, you live in that uh, heart of uh, lots happening in the finance industry. Uh, tell us, What's uh, brewing in Helena's world? I think initially, um, when Brexit first happened, and I can remember this myself, uh, thinking, wow, this is not the outcome that I would have wanted. I mean, I, 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 I can't vote for that, uh, but I, I would advocate to, to stay. I think that London, when I came here many decades ago, it changed so much. It became so much more multinational, so much more uh, innovative with all the different points of views and different backgrounds and different skills, whether it's for, you know, people who are here for education or they came to set up their businesses here. So I was quite sad when it happened. A lot of people left. Um, and, and that's, I think, you know, we, we all know that, but many people stayed. And I still think from the tech community, the visas for people who were, you know, who, who had the technical skills still uh, to bring them in to be able to work here is there. I don't know now with the changes, for example, in uh, bankers' bonuses or in some of the regulations surrounding uh, require capital requirements or liquidity requirements for the banks, whether that will attract more people back to London. But in today's budget, very timely, the Chancellor announced that he would like the UK to be a leading beacon in the AI space. Mm -hmm. And tech, right, technology, and in particular fintech, is very important to London, and that is a lot of Europeans. Mm. Well, technology and AI is definitely uh, has got huge potential. However, as we know, uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning is quite biased and is um, not working uh, to ad the advancement of, for example, female um, startups. Uh, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, it's I think we're still sometimes I wonder if if and again, we go back to that first question about, you know, quotas and, and, and artificially engineering people in the space. I think there's a um, there are great examples of like uh, girls who code with Wincy Wong. She, she's amazing with trying to get young girls who she's a she's a NetWest um, person who's getting young girls into into the coding uh, area as well to teach them the skills that they may not have had or they may not be getting in fully in mainstream um, education. So there there is, of course, the STEM discussion about getting more women into technology. There's the funding side of getting any technology business funded, but we've talked about the fact how, you know, the way that you deal with that conversation can be a, a go or a no-go as well. I think that there, it's not, also, we shouldn't push people into things that they don't necessarily want to get into just because we're trying to get more women into the space. It's a wonderful thing, but it's not necessary that you should come in only as the founder, for example, you know, you maybe you come into another part of the business and you you help to change the dynamic that way. So it might be co-founded or founded by men, but you work within that business in another way, whether you are the CPO or the CFO or, you know, or the comms person, for example. So I think we don't necessarily have to have the people, you know, constantly founding these businesses, but we definitely have to have more people in the space. Mm. While well, speaking of Chad GPT, JP Morgan uh, has forbidden uh, the use of Chad, Chad GPT, and uh, we know how useful it can be, for example, in generating some social media posts or replacing human errors. Um, I actually spoke to somebody in the finance industry uh, who told me he gave a thesis uh, to make to ChatGPT, and eventually he got the result of a great thesis on whether to invest or not invest in Microsoft. However, ChatGPT is also a Microsoft product. So how much advice can you take from a machine? Now, we, we are speaking about books and creating content and who is a better person to mention than Kim Vermak, our previous guest, and Kim is commenting, love it, less talking, more doing when it comes to helping startup. I once got a mentor from a company that did not know the difference between a quote and an invoice. I wish I could say I am joking, but I am not. Well, Kim, I hope you are going to have better experience in the future. Um, Helena, what would be advice to uh, our listeners how to find the right advocate rather than mentor? Yeah, and Kim, I, we are, it's unfortunate that we know that Kim is not alone in this. And I think the other thing that, you know, some of the mentors on, on the accelerator programs, you know, they're looking for maybe tax efficient uh, ways to invest. And so they come on to them as mentors looking for companies that they can put money into. And we know that an angel sometimes can be your best or your worst investor because they don't know your industry or they can't open those doors, um, for example, as well. So I think... And when I think back to those two people, actually three, if I take Nectarios, who I said for me were great and helping me to be an advocate, they were in large companies. And there's a difference between large employers and being self-employed. So if I'm in a large organization, then I think you've got to find the person who's maybe your, in both cases, they were my C or partner, um, people who I reported to. And I was 
I was very frank about what I could deliver and what I would like to have achieved or get from the time that I was with this organization. And I think when you're, so the second time I did it, I was in my fifties. The first time I was in my twenties, but there are times in your career when you're not that confident and you want the job and you don't want to lose the job. And you think, well, I'm going to go in there and say that, but we go into these jobs thinking, you know, I'm here forever and I can't say anything. And I'm, and it's not about what I want. It's about what, what they're paying me for. So I think we kind of have to shift that a little bit in the way we go into jobs and say, what am I here for? What do I want to achieve? And what's the time frame? And who in this organization can I speak to about helping me do that? Yes, I'm going to deliver. Of course, I'm going to deliver. You know, and if I if I think about the time I was at Grand Thornton, the accounting firm, we were working on a very large government funded project that we had nearly 30,000 companies to speak to in an 18 month period of time. I knew I could do my bit there, but I also knew I wanted to do other things maybe that were attached to um, government or attached to some other enterprise organizations. And I literally asked for what I wanted. And I don't think as women, we do that enough. We kind of go, well, maybe they'll give it to me kind of thing. Now in the self-employed world, it's all too easy for people to come to us and say, Hey, I think you'd be great for helping me. And you think, yes, I think you're probably right. (laughs) I would be great for helping you, but I'm not quite sure what I'm getting back because this is a two way street. So we have to kind of look in our own networks. You have to, you know, I'll go back to help, right? Ask people, I, I really want to try and do this or achieve this or write that or work in that space. Do you know anyone? And can you make an introduction for me? It's really straightforward, but we forget to do the basics. Mm-hmm. The other, right. And the other thing that I've recently taken more advantage of getting involved in is my alumni network. It sounds crazy because I graduated from university in 1982, I think. Uh, but I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is obviously associated with the Wharton School. And for a long time, I just kind of didn't really think about it. And then suddenly I thought, you know what? Lots of people in fintech are in this space. I'm just going to start reaching out to them. And it's been lovely. So we sometimes have it right in front of us, but we don't see it. Mm. We sometimes have it in front of us. We don't see it and we don't try to ask for help. Uh, Nectarios, Leolios, I hope your ears are burning because Helena has got lots of time for you. Um, So what we talked about today was the fact that we can achieve things. Sometimes it's okay to step back and rethink your strategy and let it go to whatever problems you're facing at the moment, because sometimes universe is really redirecting our path. Right. What is a number one book you can sit and think, oh, I wish I read it before I started my career, Helena? I love this book. I'm going to hold it up. It's called ah. Range, Range by David Epstein, if he's listening as well. This goes back to me saying, everyone saying to me, you've got to focus, you've got to focus, you've got to do one thing. You know, the only way you're going to be successful if you do one thing. Whereas Range is talking about the fact that if you look at somebody like Tiger Woods and uh, Roger Federer, he is one of the examples in the book, where Roger Federer did lots of different sports. His parents were tennis coaches, or his mom was, but she didn't push him into tennis. And eventually he found his way. And we know what happened with Roger Federer. Whereas Tiger Woods, his dad got him when he was about three, you know, got him playing golf, which is great. And he's great, obviously. But 
in some ways, they both became incredible sportsmen, but from a very different approach. And that's what Range talks about open skills, uh, you know, things that are more uh, analytical skills, the reading skills when you're young, you know, the more what people would term quote unquote soft skills, and then how you can build up your industry knowledge within those uh, the, uh, apply them and hang them on the soft skills so that it's often rather than focusing straight into the content talk took about the context and then learn the information and it was it was such a relief as if a, a weight had been lifted from my shoulders when I found this book because it was okay to be me mm -hmm. I, it wasn't somebody telling me that I had to you know keep doing things if we have time I like just one quote in here Excellent. Right. Where he says, uh, one of the earliest recorded uses of the phrase jack of all trades. So you know, people say jack of all trades, master of none, was as an insult that dates back to 1592. Goes on to talk about it was it was attributed to a playwright who was also a poet. He had no university education. He was copying scripts, doing acting, et cetera, et cetera. This poet was William Shakespeare. So. And then the phrase is actually a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Hmm. I rest there my case. <laughs> Excellent, Helena. I'm glad that you're jack of all trades because if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have you today on the show. And actually, it was Alessandro Hatami who recommended your uh, great presence to have on the show. So you published a book with Alessandro. Tell us about that book. That's right. That's right, Alessandro. We were just talking about this yesterday because it's come out in Italian now uh, and there was something in La Repubblica, uh, a, a critique of it as well, and in China. So uh, I had been speaking to, to Kogan about reinventing banking and finance, and I knew that Alessandro would be a great person to write with. The writing process was amazing with him. And it kind of went through, we started in Genoa in the, you know, the 1500s, and we went all the way through up until uh, 2020, 2021, which is when the book came out um, and, and was very well received um, within the industry. The first half of the book is all that journey from relationship banking being so intense, technology, how it changed, industrial revolution, et cetera, the IT revolution, and digital enabling you right back to that hyper-personalized relationship again, but also a little bit moving into big tech, super app, who will be the winners. And the second half of the book was like a travelogue. If you landed in New York or Tel Aviv or London or Paris, and you wanted to get into fintech, where would you go? Who would you speak to? So the second half is all um, interviews and giving you places to go, references and resources, because I'm very much, you know, I want to empower people. So that traveler who, who winds up in New York and wants to be in fintech, go here, speak to these people and get started in it. And it was a, it was a very intense um, time of writing, but I'm super pleased with the way it's it's come out. Uh, from Helena. Uh, now um, we talked about how you like to work with a blank sheet of paper. However, I like to always ask this question about. Eleanor Roosevelt once said, women are like tea bags. We don't know our true strength until we are in hot water. 
in life. How are you in hot water, Helena? How are you brewing? Yeah, <laughs> it's true, isn't it? And whether that's in a work environment or a family environment, or in my case, in a health environment, um, you know, you you do. I, I think that that phrase of people saying, "Oh, you're stronger than you think you are," is not necessarily a great thing. I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't make yourself uh, you put it. As I said, put it all on yourself. I think I think if you have a great team that uses the data and analytics to back up the things that you're doing with a heavy dose of gut and instinct. You communicate well. You all know why you're doing it, and you're you know every, every, it's it's an honest uh, communication. You know what you're trying to achieve. Hopefully, when things do get heated up, you have each other to work through it with as well. And for me, uh, going back, we've come full circle again. I experienced it from health. I experienced it from work. The times when, especially in 2008, when, you know, I really wondered if I was ever going to be able to earn a, a dime again, because it was terrible uh, at that time. You do find your way, if you can find a way to ask for constructive help. The other thing on that is don't expect too much. It's not your right to have somebody's time and I saw a post recently from Nina Mahanti, who has now created a, a banking a fa finance solution for refugees. She was so annoyed that somebody she was trying to help with it, with a funding deck expected so much of her. And that's true in the mentoring relationship, I think. Mm. People forget that it's two way and there's an expectation. Go in with gratitude, go in with an open uh, ask and transparency. Don't expect too much and also make sure you surround yourself with good people. And uh, finally, uh, we talked about it before we went online. Uh, the worst that can happen after you ask for help is no. Definitely, technology helps us in many ways because your network has networks. You can always support people that you want to get support from before you ask them to support you. Yeah. Now, can you please give us your life lesson quote? We've heard some quotation from the book, but what's your life lesson quote and how did it impact you? Okay, so I'm going back to Albert Einstein. The measure of intelligence is the ability to change. So you grow up with somebody saying, you must be a lawyer, you must be a doctor, you're a child of an immigrant. And it's all about the intellectual and educational achievement, which you know I found quite stressful, even if it was successful. What I didn't really think about was having enough information to be able to be comfortable adapting to change and being agile. And in the startup world, as we've been talking about, or in the scale up world, everyone talks about pivot, everyone talks about, being agile, it's it's more about that than it is about the knowledge that you have because you can get that from somewhere if you need to. And I think for Albert Einstein, who we know is being very intelligent to say that, it worked for me. Mm. Well, change is inevitable, um, which brings me today to the panel discussion I had and things that I heard from uh, Donna Brazil, who said, What's normal? Well, the answer usually in America is, well, normal is a city in Illinois. So <laughs> one thing you can definitely embrace change. Don't be afraid of change and be ready to accept the new normal, new norms uh, that are existing. For example, remote working, uh, which is so great for some people, of course, for others who can't change it. 
change your attitude as Maya Angelou says. Helena, it's been a pleasure to host you in today's show. I am really grateful for your time. Imagine the pandemic is over and all the stress about traveling is over and you can invite any person in the world to have private breakfast anywhere in the world. Who would you invite and where would you go to? This is, uh, this will sound a bit off the, you know, it's it's not it's not Michelangelo or somebody like that, which you might think. It's a woman called Diane Hendricks, who is at ABC Supply Company, which she founded with her husband in Beloit, Wisconsin, which is a small town. And why? If I read her story, and she's she's actually, the, I think that I think according to uh, Fortune, the wealthiest woman in in the states. She left school as a teenager. She had an early pregnancy. Her husband left school. They started a roofing company together. They kind of realized early on, this is the 70s, I think, that there was a need for centralizing information for everybody and product for everybody in the space. And yet they wanted to do it in this small town in Wisconsin. And she's gone on to create ecosystems for, for businesses there. Her husband died and she carried on. And I would love to speak to her about being a woman in that world, what it was like at, in that time in America to be pregnant as a teenager and to leave school and all that, and why she felt so passionate and so positive and sure that the small town would have the talent to be able to, in her case, it's the building trade and to train people to bring this to life. Of course, she had the finances for that, but you still need the people to be able to do that. So I'd really want to sit down with her and chart her story from teenager with baby, leaving school all the way through to being the richest woman in America. There you go. Another uh, jack of all trades um, brought to you by Helene Panzarino. You don't have to play masculine to be a strong woman, Mary Elizabeth Winstead said, and definitely it goes for Helene and many women since it's Women's History Month and we can always celebrate them 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and as always, our positivity quote comes from positive thinking only and goes, look for something positive in each day even if some days you have to look a little harder. Helena, it's been a pleasure to host you in our show. Today is Thank your you. day. To Thank you so future. much. Thank you. Hack the positivity you want. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>